It's a coup. It's a racist, fascist coup in Bolivia. It could not be more clear or more in our faces. But to the U.S. media, the illegitimate U.S. media, it's about democracy or getting rid of a dictator in Morales. No matter the fact that he was democratically elected and supported by the people of Bolivia. Again, the U.S. media, illegitimate. This is Mass Action Podcast. Revolutionary socialist propaganda to save the planet, smash white supremacy, and stop World War III. On this, the first episode of Mass Action Podcast, we'll be talking with Chicago activist Andy Thayer about Lori Lightfoot, and I will be discussing some whiny, whiny billionaires. Thanks for joining us, and now the show. So before I get to the whiny billionaires, wanted to say something about Bolivia. Well, let me say this. You all should get out into the streets. There are still protests going on. We need to raise the level of protest, actually, because this is not over. Uh, the coup is in process. The people of Bolivia are mobilizing. Evo Morales himself says uh, that he's ready to return. Of course, the coup is very serious business. The United States, which fully backs the coup, is a very powerful country. So this is very disheartening. And understandably, people should be frustrated, angry, upset. But we need to channel that in to uh, as big a street presence as we possibly can. So uh, keep, continue to join the protest. Mass action here was a part of a protest here in Chicago just uh, a few short nights ago. Also wanted to say something about the impeachment. Uh, the impeachment inquiry is actually underway. It's actually underway. And let me say this. How many working and oppressed people are actually paying attention to the impeachment process or care and even more, even more so, even more so, what exact effect would impeaching Donald Trump have on the condition of working and oppressed people in this country? I mean, right now, uh, it's, it's, we're spectators. I understand why people are paying attention. In some ways, we have to pay attention because that's the center of power in the world. But come on, come on. I mean, impeaching Trump, what is that going to do, for again, for working and oppressed people? We have a movement. We need to build a movement. We need to strengthen that movement. Uh, and what we need goes far beyond impeaching Trump. In fact, just the fact that Donald Trump is president and impeachment is the only thing that is happening tells us right there, right there, that we need something something far deeper, something much more massive in terms of uh, how the people are mobilizing and the type of resistance we're building. It there, it's there. It exists. The resistance is there. That's why there's an impeachment. That's why the proceedings is happening, because the people themselves have rejected uh, Donald Trump as president. But there's a battle going on, right? Donald Trump is president. That embolds the fascists, the racists, the right-wing elements. And so that's a real thing. But how is impeaching, how is impeaching Donald Trump going to aid us in this very serious battle? My contention is uh, that it's not. That it's not. So there's an impeachment. There you have it. All right, let me clear something up about what I said about impeachment, about impeachment. 
you know, Donald Trump is not the font of the rise, the resurgence of fascism, of racism, of white supremacy as a worldwide phenomenon, of course. Uh, capitalism is to be blamed for that. My contention is is that impeaching impeaching Donald Trump um, is not going to defeat that that movement. Um, if impeaching is all we have against white supremacy, uh, then we're in a sad state of affairs. But but of course, impeachment is not all is not all that we have. What we do have is some billionaires crying live on national television and a bunch of them up in arms. Uh, it's all over the press if you look for it. Uh, the billionaire that was crying on, in a CNBC interview was Leon Cooperman. Uh, why was he crying? He's a hedge fund uh, runner. Why was he crying? He was crying because of Warren and Sanders' tax plan. Of course, the media is only mentioning uh, Warren. They don't like to mention Sanders at all, probably because of the, the S word, uh, socialism. But anyway, he's he's crying, and not only is he crying about the, the tax plan that that would uh, tax the billionaires more and use it for things that people need, uh, a widely popular thing. In fact, it only become more popular. Uh, not only is he crying, but he said that if the tax plan were to pass, that it would lead to, quote unquote, unnatural acts happening. I don't know what that means. And also that it would be unconstitutional. unconstitutional. So according to this uh, billionaire, uh, this is something that cannot happen. It'd be irreligious and it would lead to, uh, I don't know, the gates of hell opening or something like that. But that's not all. Billionaire Paul Tudor Jones, who's another uh, billionaire investor, I already said billionaire, he said actually, and he's going on and on about this, the stock market will tank if a Democrat wins in 2020, that it will, it will bottom out uh, as much as 27%. Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, another billionaire, literally equated Warren and Trump. Uh, the idea there is obviously that anything that is out of the norm for the billionaires, anything that threatens them or challenges the stability of the society is the same. Uh, it doesn't matter if uh, you know the, the politicians are, are quite different, if the plans are quite different. And uh, we're not saying, I'm not saying, that uh, we in any way trust Warren to be able to carry out her plans. I mean, she is a very wealthy, per a wealthy person, and she is completely and totally pro-capitalist. I mean, she is a capitalist. She's trying to save capitalism, which, again, it's part of it's coming from the movement that there would be a politician like Warren, a liberal who is talking about redistributing wealth. I mean, in general, we could probably take that as a good thing, but it's not about Warren, uh, at least not for me. It's not about Warren uh, uh, as an individual. And to top all this off, to top all this off, Bill Gates this week, this week in an interview, said that he would seriously consider voting for Trump. And Bill Gates has been associated with the Democratic Party. He's a lifelong Democrat. Uh, he gives a lot of money to the Democrats. Uh, you know, he's basically one of the Democratic Party elites and is very influential, if not, you know, as a, as a, as a running or leading voice uh, in the Democratic Party and the decisions that it has made over over the last decade. So it's quite significant that he said he would vote for Trump if Warren or Sanders was the Democratic Party nominee. Okay, so why are they freaking out? Why are all these billionaires all of a sudden up in arms? And it's not because they're going to become uh, overnight less powerful if they're taxed more. They'll still be the, mo the most wealthy, most powerful people 
in the history of the world. It's not because the institutions that protect their wealth, the, the courts, the state, Congress, even the presidency, uh, the police, any of those things are being threatened fundamentally. Again, it's just because there's a whiff, a whiff of their, their wealth being talked about talked about in terms of what we could do with it, talked about in terms of maybe they shouldn't have it all, talked about in terms of why, and it's, it's in the popular discourse, why are there just a handful of rich people when there are so many poor people and people just struggling to get by in the richest country in the history of the world? Uh, it reminds one, it reminds me at least, of the, of the, of the quote-unquote civil war when the slave owners left they seceded to defend slavery and white supremacy, not because they were on the verge of being dethroned. In fact, the, the U.S. law and the institutions of the United States were so in their favor to an extent that they had never been before. I mean, they were able to, for example, make the Underground Railroad uh, illegal and put a bounty on Harriet Tubman's head. She was the most wanted criminal during the, during the period before the so-called Civil War. Uh, they had great power. Black people, according to the law, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 and, and other things, uh, according to the law, had, had no rights in this country, had no rights whatsoever. So the slave owners were not in a position where their wealth was being threatened, but they left. And that's, that's the type of people these billionaires are. They don't care about the rest of the population. They can't care about the rest of the population. Their interests lie in their wealth. United States be damned. Any country be damned. That doesn't matter to them. And so why am, I, why am I bringing this up? Why am I saying this? Because it, it, this is a perfect example of the fact that working people should shed our, our connections with the billionaires. We're not connected with them. They're the wealthiest people in the history of the world, and they feel no, no connection with us and no compunction to threaten us, to threaten us if we even talk about their wealth. Look at what the billionaires did in Seattle. They just tried to, they just tried to buy the election. They just tried to buy the election. And what happened? They lost. They lost. And it's time for, not for rhetoric, but for the billionaires to start losing and losing more. In fact, they need to lose all of their wealth. The fact that they own all the wealth is the cause of the problems that we're facing. It's the cause of the crises that we're facing. The people know it. You know it. We all know it. It's time to literally expropriate, expropriate the exploiters. It's just that simple. It's not a simple thing to do, but that is the lesson here. Their wealth needs to be taken from them, and they need to stop, stop, stop with this crying nonsense. It's foolishness. They're children. They're children whose wealth needs to be grabbed from them and used to solve the world's problems, from the streets of Chicago to Latin America to the Middle East to all over the world. It's time for the reign of the billionaires to end. It needs to end, my friends. All right. We'll be back in a second, but first, check us out at mass-action.org. We are on Facebook. Check us out there. We also have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash massaction. The podcast, as well as being on SoundCloud, is also on Spotify and Google Play and will be other places soon. Please, please, please spread the word about Mass Action, the new bold socialist propaganda Tool for the masses. Our guest on Mass Action Podcast this episode is Andy Thayer. Andy Thayer is a good friend, a longtime activist, anti-war activist with the Chicago Committee Against War and Racism. 
the Gay Liberation Network. You all know who Andy is, right? Welcome, Andy. <laughs> Thanks for having me, John. Oh, you're welcome. I wanted to bring you on. Both of I have, uh, we've worked in the anti-war movement. We're anti-war activists for a long time. We worked together quite a quite a bit, actually. And I said that's what I wanted to talk to you about, but I'm not going to talk to you about that first. <laughs> uh, what I want, well, we're in Chicago. There was a, a, a victorious Chicago, at least in my opinion, a victorious Chicago teacher strike that pretty much everybody who's listening to this obviously knows about it. Uh, Lori Lightfoot, the new mayor, uh, was not exactly a friend to the people of Chicago, the teachers or the students. Uh, she perpetrated some of, the, some of the same campaigns of misinformation and lies that any capitalist mayor of a city like Chicago would do. Uh, and now we find out that in their new budget that, that we've all been anxiously waiting for, she's okay with uh, increasing the police budget by 7% to the tune of over uh, or almost $100 million when she kept crying there was no money for teachers and students and just things that poor people need. What do you, how do you respond, Andy? Well, this isn't the first budget lie that she has brought forward. Uh, at the anti-Trump protest here in Chicago just a few days ago, we learned that morning that she had pledged not to bill the Trump campaign for the security for the campaign portion of his visit, which not that he would have paid anyway, but the, the you know saying that there wasn't money for librarians and social workers and nurses uh, and and decent class sizes, and yet saying that you're not going to bill the uh, supposedly uber wealthy Trump campaign, according to his own testimony, for the security for a purely political act was ridiculous. Um, so, uh, and we've been down this road before because while in her campaign, she said she was in favor of all these things for our schools, while in her campaign, she said that she opposed uh, funding the COP Academy, the $95 million Westside mm -hmm. COP Academy that has got a whole bunch of activists in the city, especially on the West Side, really ripped off about. Uh, she not only said that she reversed that, but she also said she was with many top academies and many of the schools that her predecessor, Rahm Emanuel, shut down. Uh, right. So over and over, and she's doubling her mayoral office budget at the same time that she supposedly has got a hiring freeze on in the city of Chicago. So she right. says one thing out of one mouth and does something with another. And predictably enough, that other thing is always something that's against the people. Well, she also shifted the money for the police that are in schools to the CPS budget to over $30 million. She said, hey, you're just going to you're going to pay for the police that are, uh, you know, abusing your abusing your students and making the environment so much worse. I'm trying to remember what's the name of the development that the teachers marched on. Uh, Lightfoot also before Lincoln she, Yards. Lincoln Yards. Lightfoot also before she came mayor refused to. She could have. She could have stood in the way of the transfer of th that many millions of dollars to the billionaire real estate investor, invest, investor that is uh, uh, constructing Lincoln Yards. But she she let that money go right ahead. She's letting That's all the right. other money go right ahead too. Again, another one of her campaign promises was was to stop this funding of these uber-rich developments that only benefit rich people in the main. Uh, $1.7 billion for Lincoln Yards and the 43, which is the other 
uh, a big development on the near south side of Chicago. And one thing that people have not examined, including people on our side about this, John, is that when you have these huge developments, they say, oh, it'll bring jobs and so forth. But does it really bring new jobs? The big development in New York uh, is apparently just sucking out money from other uh, developed oh, areas yeah. of the city. Oh, come on. The answer for all this stuff is no. We know this after what, 40 years of doing this? Like it doesn't, there are more jobs. I mean, it doesn't. It's a shell game. Yeah. It's just, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. Well, uh, Lightfoot won the election in a slam dunk. Um, and partly because people wanted something different. She's putting herself forward as a reformer, as someone who's going to tackle quote unquote, the city's corruption. Uh, obviously, that's not the case. Of course, she's the first black woman mayor. She's the first lesbian woman mayor. So in a way, it's a historic thing. And certainly there's the will, and you can see this from the aldermanic elections where we have five or six socialists and other actual progressives, people from the movement in city council. Although getting anything done in the city council as an alderman is almost like uh, it's impossible. The mayor is a dictator of the city, really, legally and just functionally. Uh, but What's your take? I mean, obviously, this has not happened. Neither one of us, I know you, expected Lightfoot to be anything progressive whatsoever. I mean, I'm not surprised. I know you're not surprised. What's your take for Because well, your take is the way you say things on podcasts, isn't it? <laughs> well, for those who may not have be familiar with her history, uh, I think it is important recounting that she was head of the Office of Professional Standards, which was the so-called police oversight board in the 1990s before it became so discredited that it was renamed uh uh, IPRA, which in turn has been renamed after it that got discredited, COPA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, she was also head of the police board. Now, those two positions that she held were appointed by Richard M. Daly and Rahm Emanuel, respectively. And you know, anything anyone who's the least bit progressive in the city knows what Rahm Emanuel and Richard M. Daly are about. Well, these clowns are not going to appoint someone to such a sensitive right, position right. as you know, head of overseeing brutal cops unless that person is 100% politically trustworthy. And, and Lightfoot landed both jobs under both those, those horribly regressive mayors. So it, it should, really shouldn't be any surprise to people uh, if they bothered looking into her history that this is what she's doing today as mayor. One thing it should be noted, while she did win all 50 wards, it was a record low turnout in that right, mayoral right, election. Right. Um, the, the, the field... Uh, had been splintered a lot. People really didn't know much about the candidates they felt, except that they knew uh, uh, Lightfoot's uh, opponent, Preckwinkle, and so uh, didn't really like her, but they didn't know anything about Lightfoot. And sure, well, sure. They're finding out now. <laughs> well, let me, right. She's a, she was a, former, she's a mayor's henchman as a mayor. Yes. I mean, yes. that's what we have yes. now. Well, let's, I always like to look for the thing that can, keep me optimistic about the struggle, even in the elections. And at least the people soundly rejected that maybe even more clownish daily. Yeah. You know well, what I mean? The thing about Lightfoot is, is that while a lot of people didn't know about her, her whole marketing was I'm rejecting Rom. I'm a breath of 
you know, fresh air. So clearly that's what people were voting for, even though they sure. didn't really know anything about her. And the fact that you had six uh, uh, Democratic socialists elected to the city council. I mean, how many city councils around the United States can you say that about? So clearly people were looking for something different. And that's something to take heart in. Unfortunately, uh, they were fooled again by a very corporate-backed candidate. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. she, her, her, her contributions were from all the wrong sources, uh, pretty yeah. much the same people who backed, backed Ron before her. Mm -hmm. She put her finger to the wind uh, when she announced, realizing that people so loathed Ron that Ron was likely either not going to run at all, or if he was going to run, he would have been forced into runoff and likely lost. And so she put uh, on her reforming costume, if you will, because she had been such an anti-reformer before that, and that's how she won. So yeah. you know, there is there is an optimistic thread in there, I agree. Oh, I, I think very much. I think looking around us, the, the prevailing winds are optimistic. Very much so. It's not like in the elections, we're not going to have huge sweeping. If we have huge sweeping victories in the elections, then we're like, whoa, I mean, we're on the verge of something really big, you know, because the elections are they're so undemocratic and they're so replete with marketing campaigns. I think you put it you put it very well there, marketing campaigns. That is going to allow me to segue to the thing that I asked you to come on and speak with us about. And that's mar and to talk marketing campaigns in the case of war. Oh, sheesh, man. The, the establishment here puts on marketing campaigns par excellence. Really, I mean, we have to hand it to them in a way. They're so good at marketing wars. They're so, so thoroughly good at marketing wars and selling them to the people as something that's good for the people of Iran or the people of the world or the people of this targeted country or that targeted country. They sell it as good for people here. Um, which uh, is thinly veiled. That doesn't last for very long. We saw the people reject the Iraq war very soon after because they weren't getting anything. Like, we don't get anything from the wars. It's not that hard to figure out. But at first, the barrage of marketing campaign, all of the media is so complicit in selling the war, all of it. Sometimes I, I talk to my students about the two Iraq wars, and I said, you have to know this about the media when we're studying the media and looking into the media, that they all were for the, those wars. Not one of them okay. was against it. Not one. Not one uh, media outlet exposed any of the lies or even tried to. It's kind of like when everybody knew that there was a video of Laquan, La Laquan McDonald, none of the media stations sought to get the video that would have been the biggest news story of the decade. They, didn't even, they weren't even seeking to look after their bottom line or what was in their interest. They're so imbued in, in, in propping up this racist, imperialist, warmongering system that um oh anyway i'm babbling but marketing campaigns anti-war movement what's your well, take andy their their default is to defer to their betters which are is the administration whether local or national and it, part of it is just laziness um i mean on my job i deal with the media all the time and, and actually uh, you know a number of the rank and file reporters um you know they'll they'll be simpatico to some of the messages we're giving sure. but then it hits the editors i mean the tribune editorial board uh i say this as a loyal subscriber uh, <laughs> to that and the sun times both editorial boards uh -huh. were horrible they they totally parroted the mayor's line for so long until it became uh you know 
fortunately, the, the Chicago Teachers Union and SEIU Local 73 were getting the message out about what the, the strikes were really about. It was only when those other narratives became so overwhelming that they even bothered to acknowledge that maybe their line all along in this strike was wrong. Right, right. It makes me think of uh, there was a protest after Trump's election here in Chicago that we both helped organize uh, 5,000 people. I, I think it was in February of 2000. And, um, no, I, it's February it was, 2000. Yeah, it, was the, uh, it was on the, uh, the uh, inauguration, I believe. Mm, it was before the, it was, well, was it a month after the inauguration? I can't remember when it was. It, yeah. There were so many of those protests that, and um, I'm getting older, I guess, I suppose. I don't know. But anyway, we have a video. Uh, our friend Matt actually from Occupy posted a video of the entire March on Facebook and yeah. you could see that it was thousands and thousands of people. 5,000 was a, you know, not an over generous estimate. The Chicago Tribune literally ran a headline saying 200 people marched next to a picture of masses of people. When you can see at the front of the march, says more than 200 cops. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? And it's, well, yeah. I mean, it's, and, and there it's just straight up. I mean, the Tribune's owned by the, the family that owns the Cubs. I don't know why. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, they've, they've actually split, but oh, they they're, have. they're very corporate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and one of the brothers is actually in the Trump administration of the family. Yeah, so that, he's uh, actually, um, he's the, the finance chairman for the campaign, Ricketts. Ricketts, yeah. Yes. I purposely forget our enemy's name sometimes, and it's not something <laughs> I should do. I should remember their names. Uh, well, I, you know, actually, I think um, that's not a bad place to end the interview. Uh, maybe I'll have you back on, and we'll actually talk about the freaking anti-war movement at some point. Um, but do you have any final, final riffs or thoughts on the stuff we were talking about, or maybe you want to fill us in on your organizing against a possible war in Iran? Well, you know, I you know, let's take up the Iran thing on a on a future episode, John. The one sure. thing I say, just keeping with the themes we're discussing, is that in terms of countering the narrative, the media narratives that are so um, outrageous in terms of being uh, not at all representing the facts on the ground, the critical thing in this strike by both SEIU seventy three and uh, the Chicago Teachers Union was constant mass mobilizations. I mean, every single day, uh, there was at the very least picket lines at every school, but more often than that, on top of that, they would have a mass mobilization, whether over at the Buckingham Fountain or marching on the um, the uh, uh, the TIF project that you talked about, or mm-hmm. talking, you know, marches downtown, ringing the city hall. And the critical thing is, is that you get that many people together in one place, not just social media. Though social media is helpful, you get everyone, yeah. and it, it, it it's so it's helpful. It's counters, helpful. Yeah. It counters. Hello. The, uh, no, sorry, that's my. <laughs> right. I'm hanging up on them. There we go. Um, it so right. counters the uh, the narrative of the press that at a certain point, even the press has to grudgingly admit <laughs> that um, that they they've got it wrong. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, let me tell you, this podcast is titled Mass Action for a Reason. We are very much, very much in favor of mass action and thinking think of it fondly. <laughs> Not, not, don't just think of it fondly. You know, this is, I mean, mass action is what, for lack of a better way of putting it, gets the goods. It's what Absolutely. flexes our power. 
it's what makes it, it what makes working class and oppressed people's power possible. You know, thanks, Andy. I really appreciate it. And uh, we will be talking to you soon, hopefully soon and often on or off the podcast, be seen in the streets. Thanks again, Andy. Sounds great, John. Thanks and congratulations on the podcast. Well, thank you very much. Don't congratulate me yet. We'll see what happens. <laughs> All right, Andy. Thanks. All right. That's it for this episode. That's it for my podcast voice. I'm going to go back to talking normally now. But seriously, uh, probably wasn't funny, right? But seriously, seriously, if you like what you heard, if you thought what you heard was important in this in this episode, then then support. Support one by sharing. Share it as widely as you possibly can. We need more outlets like this. We need more propaganda outlets like this to take the people's side in the struggle to defeat capitalism, imperialism, and racism. You can also support by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash mass action. If you become a patron for as little as $2 a month or as much as a million dollars a month, you get patron-only exclusive content. Exclusive, exclusive, very, very, very exclusive content. All right, that's it for this episode. Thank you very much for joining me. I will visit you soon on the next episode in Podcast Landium. <laughs>